Every writer knows that the best conversations about writing don't happen in classrooms or symposia or any other fancy artisanal setting. They happen at the bar, usually after deadline. That's the vibe we're going for here. This is The Other 51, conversations with writers of all genres about writing. I'm Brian Moritz. Today's guest is Lindsay Boyle from The Day in New London, Connecticut. Lindsay Boyle, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is exciting for, for me because if, you know, not counting the episode my wife was on because I'm not a guest on my own podcast, this is this completes the first married couple uh, uh, of guests that I've ever had. I had uh, your wife, Molly, uh, was our, my very first guest back on episode one, and now you're here today. This is cool. Yeah, no, very cool, very cool. Yeah, so when uh, when when Molly was on, we we spent half the episode talking about Hamilton, as you do, um, especially this is what two summers ago now. So it was kind of when Hamilton was at its peak, and uh, I know she's a fan. Are you as equally a fan of that show as, you, as she is? Um, I, I would say that that she has edged me out a little bit because she continues to quote from it regularly. <laughs> <laughs> including, in a, including in a tweet today, believe it or not. Nice. Um, but no, I, I I love it. I love the soundtrack. I I and it still blows my mind that you could read an eight hundred page book and and turn it into that. It's it's just crazy to me. It it's is. Crazy. It is, and you guys saw it too, right? Right, we did. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm gonna. See, I'm seeing it next year on on tour with one of the touring casts here in Rochester. Um, now you, how, who was left from the original cast when you guys saw it? Oh oh oh! See, this is where Molly would be better. <laughs> I am, um, but not 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 a lot. I want to say uh, I don't know. I, I'm gonna message if I guess there wasn't a whole lot of the original cast left. I will say that, and it was still just a phenomenal show. I, I, I can imagine. I can't wait to see. You know, it's one of those things where like I've listened to the soundtrack, of course, a billion times, but to see it staged and to see a show staged and to see it in person and to hear the pod, like that's. I'm super excited. I, 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 I just can't wait to see that. I feel like that's something that non-theater, I don't know if you're not a theater person, you don't get like how different it is to see it experience a show in person. Yeah, sure. No, I, I would agree with that. Um, but I, it was, it, you know, I've seen, I've seen a good number of shows and it was, it was number one by far. Um, so before we get to uh, journalism and writing and all that that stuff, we have another important piece of business to talk about. Um, how are you feeling about Cleveland sports these days? Oh, you know, you know, I I feel I feel good. I feel like the the Cavaliers' victory is enough to hold me over for a long time. Um, <laughs> I I feel the same way that Molly feels about the Pirates, about the Browns, and by that I mean I have vowed to not purchase anything or support the organization financially in any way until they get their crap together. <laughs> uh, but I still I still am a hopeless fan. I can't help but root for them. I was, I, so, so I wanted to ask that because uh, I had Joe Poznanski on years ago, and it was, I think it was right after lo, the, the Cavs won. And obviously, you're in the afterglow of finally winning a title. And I'm a Buffalo sports fan, so that's like the you know the dream that this actually happens. So a couple years later, does that 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 glow still holds from that one title? I think it does for me. I think um, obviously the Indians are. A- such a fun team and making it to the world series at all was another great accomplishment. I think that there are fans in Cleveland who are disappointed that that we didn't end up coming home with two championships, but um, I think that's a little bit greedy. I I thought it was a great series and I'm just in it for the, 
for that. You know, it, it's, it was fun. There was nothing that could have been better about it to well, me. Well, and they're such a fun team too. I mean, they're so good and they're so much fun and you get to gain extra innings game seven of the world series. I mean, that's at some point, that's just like, you know, you don't want to say luck, but it comes, comes down to kind of luck, a weird bounce somewhere and you win or you lose. So it was an absolute thriller. I mean, I, I, would I have loved the Indians to win? Of course, but I'm not going to be mad about what, what ended up happening. Right. So, so one more thing on Cleveland sports is I'm always fascinated by, it, cause, you know, like I said, I grew up in Buffalo, so we kind of have that, that, you know, sure. cursed sure. city thing going on here. Um, for the, you know, you have the Cavs, you have LeBron, you won the title. The Indians are really good. Um, but the Browns, like how much of a, I, I guess for, for, uh, you know, you can speak in general or speak personally, is a, that a weight on Cleveland, the Cleveland sports scene that you have these two teams that are really, really good, but the NFL, t- but, but you have one that's just really bad. And like, does, does that kind of suck the joy? Is, is that like an anchor on, on like the sports experience for the city? Do you think? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so far removed from Cleveland that I, I wouldn't want to necessarily speak for it, but here's, in my experience, Cleveland is still very much a football city. I mean, it, the, they, they love the Browns. They love the Browns more than they love the Cavs. They, they love the Browns more than they love the Indians. They, they've supported the Browns better than they've supported the Indians, for example. I mean, it's a football town, a football city, and the fact that the football ownership or leadership continues to make apparently horrible decisions. <laughs> um, let me put it in nice terms. Uh, I, I do think it's a downer. I, I think that obviously everyone was thrilled when the Cavs brought it home, but a lot of people hadn't even been watching the NBA that season. You know, mm-hmm. we, and I'm saying that myself included. We all kind of hopped on at the last couple months, and um, I, I think that a football title would mean much more to the city of Cleveland, but. Um, yeah, in the meantime, it, it's just so frustrating um, that, like I said, where I am is that I won't financially support the organization right now. Right. And now, obviously, right where you are now geographically is Connecticut. So I wanted to let you kind of talk a little bit about your career path, where, where you're working and kind of how you got to your current gig. Um, sure. Yeah. So I, I took a little bit of a different avenue out of um, college. I went to Ohio University, uh, graduated there in the, you know, the May of 2013. Um, I didn't start looking for full-time jobs right away because I knew that I had this postgraduate opportunity coming up um, to go study, well, not study abroad, to actually work abroad in Ghana for about three months. Mm-hmm. Um so I did that in October of 2013 and like the summer I just worked some kind of, you know, a couple part-time jobs and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, so I lived in Ghana for, for three months and I think we can get more into that later. But, um, once I came back, I applied to uh, a couple different gigs in Connecticut because that's where Molly lives and works and already lived and worked. Um, got a, got a couple bites, but I wasn't really thrilled with any of the offers. So I ended up in upstate New York. Woo-hoo! Yeah. In <laughs> Utica, as you know, um, for probably about nine months, um, before I, I did try to come back down here. And that's when I landed at the day, which, uh, actually have been here for just more than three years now. All right. And what is your official job title there? Technically, I am the breaking news reporter and editor, but that doesn't really cover very much of what I do. So what, so what is it that you do then? Um, so what I do, I do, I do break the news. Um, I'm the only 
designated full-time breaking news person, which is kind of uh, a tough position to be in, as as you know, news breaks 24-7. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do try to, to have some eye on what's going on all the time when I'm working. But uh, in addition to that, I try to cover law enforcement on a more substantial basis. Um, and that could be, you know, writing about something fluffy and fun that they're doing or, you know, in- investigating an officer who's punching handcuffed man in the face. Um, so that's part of what I do. I cover the opioid epidemic pretty substantially. Um which, you know, that that has an obvious law enforcement element. And I also um, try to keep a, an immigration story. I try to write about immigration when I can. It's a, a third beat that I kind of co-opted after the election. Okay. Um, so that's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's a full plate. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, you talked about uh, being a breaking news reporter. Um, and kind of go into that a little bit. You said you like to kind of keep an eye on what's going on uh, while you're on in terms of breaking news. So like, actually, how do you do that? Like how, what are the mechanisms or the tools you use? How do you keep track of what's happening on in in, in your community and kind of what, when, 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 let's break this down. When news breaks, like how do you know it's something for you to spring into action on? Um, sure. Yeah. So this is where old and new worlds collide, I think, um, because some of it is still good old fashioned scanner listening. <laughs> um, and that is still a thing. It's still something I, I do every day. And when I come home, I, I don't turn the TV on. I just sit in silence for an hour every day if I can do it. <laughs> okay. But, um, so, I mean, you, you do develop an ear for that. You learn what the numbers that they're saying mean. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear something like car versus child, which I heard yesterday. Um, so that's clearly one that I'm going to chase down. It turns out that someone threw a toy at a child, which is not oh, exactly geez. the thing. It's a crashing into a child. But, um, <laughs> you know, those are the things that you have to kind of pay attention to. Uh, most fires I'll go cover, um, you know, any kind of, if it sounds like... Um, a weapons call, like a, a shots fired. I might, I might go as well. Um, so it, that's the kind of thing. Um, but in addition to that, uh, the new world aspect of this is, is social media. Um, and I will say that I, I follow, I like, um, probably about 57 different types of law enforcement pages and I get notifications from all of them on Facebook, which is okay. insane. I realize, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's really helpful um, in terms of especially like I said I'm the only full time breaking news person so like one of my colleagues who's at a meeting a nighttime meeting has maybe missed something at seven p.m. the night before but I'll get this notification I'll either be able to let them know or track it down the next day that kind of thing and, and so when you get on scene so there, there's a fire or you you chase down something that you hear and and, and you go on scene so I guess I guess that. I'm assuming do you how often do you go to a scene versus like start calling or texting or something like what's the next step after you like some like something on the scanner or you see something that like uh, like alerts the the bubble what next sure Um, you know if it's a fire we'll 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 wait and I say we like my other and I usually kind of decide this together Um, we'll wait for the first fire trucks to arrive on scene usually unless we've seen other things on social media um so let me explain that um 
if it's just a house fire call or a fire alarm call, we're not going to run out the door right away. Cause a lot of times the first responders will show up and they'll be like, Oh, we don't actually see any smoke. Um, we don't see anything. So the house might not actually be on fire. Um, the other day we heard the call over the scanner, but we also saw a post on Facebook that showed just this gigantic plume of smoke. And it, it was an auto um, like a, a car dealership, not a dealership, like a repair place that was on fire and mm-hmm. the car, the cars were actively exploding. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you could, and you could see it in this video that someone was like Facebook living essentially. So we ran out the door right away on that one. Okay. Uh, the car versus child. It was close. So I could have just run out the door, but I, I thought I heard on the scanner, like not as reported. I thought I heard that. So I actually called up the fire marshal, um, in, in the city where, where this was. And I was like, Hey, did I just hear that? That was not as reported, not founded. And he's the one who was like, Oh yeah, don't bother coming out. Like it was a toy. So, um, it, it depends, but yeah, I usually try to get in touch with, with someone as quickly as I can who, who's a trusted source, um, but there are times that I just have to run out the door. And then when you get there, when you kind of start, you either get to the scene or talk to somebody, what what then? Are you throwing stuff online? Are you posting on Twitter? Like, how, how are you, you're the breaking news reporter, so how do you actually break news? So I, I do prefer, I do like Twitter. Um, if you want more than what's just going to be online or if you want it faster then you should follow me on Twitter. That's just, that's the, the reality of it. If, if I'm at a scene, I'm probably going to tweet first. Okay. Uh, then I'm going to write something up uh, by email for my, someone back at the office to post um, to our website. So it's going to be Twitter first. Um, and I'll probably update Twitter a little bit more frequently. Um, then when I get back to the office, whenever that is, I'll, I'll finish updating the online story. So the online story is not always the, the priority for me. Okay. And is that something that you kind of came to on your own or is that like, an, like you and your editors worked out? Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say that I came to that on my own okay. I, and I would I wouldn't say it's like my editors are obviously okay with it. They've never, um, they've never gotten mad at me for scooping myself or scooping a website on my Twitter page. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of how I prefer to do it. I think, um, you'll see, you know, there, there is competition in getting some of this information out and that's everyone else is going to take to Twitter first. Um, and then, you know, some, some will call back and dictate what to write for the web. Um, like I said, I usually end up typing up an email, but I don't know, you know, typing up an email on your phone is not the fastest way to write a story. So I, I, I like to get something out on Twitter first. And that, I haven't heard the phrase scooping ourselves on the web, scooping ourselves on the website. I've not heard that in like, I mean, probably since I was a reporter. That's, I, that is such a, it's such a funny kind of like weirdly antiquated notion. Like I remember when we were first starting doing, doing, online publishing like you didn't want to post something online because you would scoop yourselves in the paper and right. and that and and that sounds bizarre to you know when i teach that sounds bizarre to, to my students i think but that was such a real thing right you did not want to you did not want to give away the store for free and give away your scoop um and and that happened when twitter started too but it's it's you know it's how people are getting that that information and it's i think you know especially with what you do it would seem to be especially important like if there's a fire or a breaking news situation you that information needs to be out there absolutely yeah absolutely and i mean i mean 100% it's never it's always been my view that we should get information to people in the fastest way possible i mean that is actually but where you know one of the things that we're trying to do here is right. inform 
inform the public. Um, so, I mean, I think that, that you'll have the back and forth with the old school, new school in, in probably a lot of newsrooms still. Um, but that's definitely my approach to breaking news, at least. So what is the most bizarre thing you've heard on the scanner since you've been there? Oh, <laughs> oh man. There are... I, I'm not, you know, none are none are coming to mind at the moment. But I'm gonna have to think on that one and get back to you because um, I, I tweet them out every once in a while when I hear something particularly insane. Um, you know, I think one of the favorite ones that I'm thinking of right now is that um, police were called out to a scene, and this would have been a couple of years ago. I don't even remember where, um, but the call was basically that a I don't know it was a woman or a man, uh, the driver of a vehicle that was being towed jumped on top of his or her car on top of the towing rig so that it couldn't be towed. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a pretty fantastic visual out of that one. That's awesome. Yeah, my uh, my, my good friend Doug Schneider works at Green Bay, and he he's the scanner squat guy. He was one of the first guys to do that where he would – his Sunday job is to tweet what he hears uh, from the scanner from Lambeau Field. Oh, nice, nice. Which is just awesome. So, oh, sure. Yeah, no kidding. So, I'm I'm wondering you you have the other beats. You you cover you write about the opioid epidemic. You write about immigration issues. I'm wondering how do you balance writing about those things? I mean, they're all law enforcement, like you said. But it would strike me that 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 those are kind of you know meteor issues, kind of much more in depth issues writing about. And I'm wondering how you balance writing and reporting and researching and thinking about those while also you know responding to breaking news and stuff. Yeah, I have to give uh, major credit to my former editor, Lisa McGinley, who actually, um, she encouraged me to get into the breaking news stuff in, in the first place because um, I had started as a town reporter and I actually thought that I would hate it. I, I didn't think that I wanted to be writing just a bunch of short little meaningless blurbs all the time. Um, and it turns out that, you know, you you handle that aspect of the job, you get interrupted, you do have to go out to fires and fires are an ordeal because you have to stand and wait for 35 minutes for someone to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a little frustrating, but, but it actually turns out it's kind of, it's like, I, I work, I work well with it. I, I, I have a bunch of different projects, um, going on at any given time. I'm working on several mm -hmm. stories right now and I, I kind of get to them, um, as I can, uh, I understand that I'll be interrupted or that if a press release comes in about some kind of crime, I'm going to have to write that up. But, um, and, and then, I mean, there's, there's two parts to that question. The other part is how do I balance between opioids, long, you know, police and immigration, right. which is much more complicated. And, you know, I don't feel like I can necessarily master any of them. I think you could master, you know, you could use one whole person just to look at the police departments. You know, I, I, there are po police departments that I don't get to talk to nearly as much as the ones that are closer to me. Uh, and I probably, you know, that could be a full-time beat on its own. Um, I think immigration is just so hugely important that, that it's, I took it on on my own. Um, I've, I've made a couple contacts in the community. They'll generally let me know when, you know, when something's going on right now, I'm shadowing a woman who's uh, seeking asylum. Uh, I just, you know, that's something when there's something that comes up w with her case, I, I go with with her and the people around her um, to just stay up on it. So it's a lot of, um, you know, I, I, I will get to a point where I'm like, oh, I haven't written about 
opioids in a while. Like, but then the chief medical examiner will, will release fatal overdose death numbers, you know. So it kind of ends up like the news as it is comes and it, it ends up being a little bit balanced. So you said that you took on this immigration beat on your own, and we don't need to talk about why it's an important beat since 2016, obviously. But I'm wondering for you personally, like, why did you decide to do that? Uh, So um, in in New London and in Norwich, Connecticut, um, there's a very sizable um, immigrant population in in each of those cities. And it's something I just, I think, I mean... You could you could launch me into a long conversation here, Ryan. I think there are a lot of issues with the diversity of coverage in newspapers. Um, and, and I mean that's true for a lot. I think, but particularly small newspapers. I, I look at I look around our newsroom. We don't represent our communities, and I don't think we write about our you know the the different elements of our communities enough. Um, so obviously, with the election, um, this became even more pressing, but it was something that was already on my mind that, that we need to get out into, um, into more diverse areas because it's a diverse, it's a diverse part of the state, um, or at least two cities are, and it's lacking. The coverage is lacking and, and it's important. So I, I, I we can have this long conversation. I would love to have it, uh, about diversity and issues of it. And, and so for like, when I teach this to students, you know, where, where, how do they start? Like if they want to write, if they recognize the importance of diversity and, um, and the importance of kind of, you know, reflecting their communities, how do they start? Like what are, like if we agree on this as an important principle, concrete steps, what, what can they do to, what, what can we do to be better at it? Oh yeah, 100%. Um, I, you know what, I, that's a great question. And it's important. I think that that's usually the hang up is people don't want to go into the communities that are different than, than what they're used to or what, or they feel, or they would feel awkward on it. You know, I could imagine myself feeling awkward going into that. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, you know, and I haven't even mastered it. This is one where I still want to do more, um, to get even farther out into the communities. But, um, I started by looking for organizations. Um, and I think that anyone can do this. Um, look for the organizations that are working with immigrants. Um, I would say that probably most counties have at least something. Um, New London happened to have a, a very great uh, advocacy center that's um, about a half a mile from the newspaper offices. So, um, you know, I befriended the the director of that agency. And through him, I've met so many other people and I've learned about interesting projects um, that are going on in, in the town that are around immigration, uh, one of which is actually going to be uh, not- noticed on the statewide level um, tomorrow. They're going to be awarded. So it, it's pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the start is go to the church leaders, the neighborhood leaders, the nonprofit runners, like you just find anyone and everyone that you can that that's working with that population. Um because it might be a more comfortable place for you to start with, you know, someone who's in a leadership position and is used to talking to the media and can reach out to the people that they work with and, and make it a, a mutual meeting that, that you're going to take out some of the potential for awkwardness when you have that, that person that has trust on both sides involved. 
When you're interviewing people and you interview and you write about really tough subjects, I mean, immigration is a big issue, a uh, tough issue, breaking news. Obviously, you're dealing with people who are having a really bad day, um, mm-hmm. the opioid epidemic, obviously. So how do you how do you interview like how do you handle interviewing somebody in those situations? I think, um, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. You just you have to be authentic and you have to be genuine. And if you're not, then I'm not sure that that, that you could even do it. Um, but I, I really, I take a lot of time explaining before an interview to someone, um, why I, I want to do something. And, and what comes to mind is I, I interview a, f- a family earlier this year. Um, and last year they decided to put in their son's obituary exactly why he died. Um, it was a very moving obituary. And I remember it stuck with me from March until those fatal overdose numbers came out. And I remember I, I led with that obituary in my story about the overdose numbers, um, which is kind of a long story. But anyway, they the family reached out to me and they were like, hey, thanks for, for recognizing that. We were wondering if, if writing it in the obituary was the right thing to do, but it looks like it was because you noticed it for what it was. And that's, you know, trying to make it... Um, clear that this affects a lot of people. Um, But the point of all of this is to say that even after they reached out in late 2017, maybe not quite late 2017, but in any event, we had some back and forth for like several, several months, actually. And they ultimately decided that they, they did want to sit down and share their story with me. I had just, you know, I had told them I would be interested in it if they were. And I kind of left it on them, touch base with them every once in a while. And by the time that we finally met, we'd been talking for so long that um, that it was almost comfortable right away. But again, I think all of that goes back to the fact that, that they saw other work I had done. They knew I was genuine. They knew I didn't just want to fly in and fly out. They knew that I was going to take you know, months if, if I had to, for them to be comfortable, um, I, I, they knew that I didn't mind that. So I think that that's the, the main thing you have to, to keep in mind is the humanity of it. Yeah, empathy is such an overlooked skill, I think, for reporters and for writers and journalists. Definitely. Um, so you mentioned earlier your experience in going to Ghana to report, um, and I'd love to hear about it. So, I mean, how did that come about? What were, you know, just kind of tell me about reporting and being in Ghana for a few months. Yeah, it was it was um it was it was crazy. I'll tell you what. I I had studied abroad in Zambia prior to that in 2011, but but going on a study abroad and like getting off the plane and being by yourself are completely different things. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, it it started off that I got off the plane and the guy that was supposed to pick me up um thought I was coming the next day, so he wasn't even there. And um, you know, in Ghana, they speak English, but they, they do have substantial accents, which I ended up mastering toward the end, but at the beginning, <laughs> it's just like, well, what, what? Um, so I'm like trying to, to get in contact with this guy in a place where I don't have cell phone service. I don't actually even have a working cell phone yet. I didn't understand the currency yet, which was, you know, that, that was dumb. I should have learned that before I landed, but <laughs> I got swindled out of like 10 bucks to make a single phone call is what happened. <laughs> uh, that, that's how it started. By the end, I was navigating the taxi cab drivers down and it, it was great fun. But anyway, the reporting aspect. So I, um, 
I had worked on a an international program with Ohio University for um, one of the summers that I was there, and I ended up running into a guy who who had a pretty um, pretty good pretty high up role in the one of the national newspapers there. So through that contact, I landed an internship with the national newspaper, um, which I didn't do every single day, but I did I think about three days a week. Um, and I also worked with a communications university. Um, the rest of the time, I would go hang out with the students there and um, work with one of their student um, groups. So it, it, it was um, it was an interesting experience, I think I'll say. Um, working with a national newspaper, the, the writing was a little bit... Um, it wasn't exactly my, my style. I write a lot, like I talk, and, and they, they prefer much more rigid type of writing, or at least they did when I was there. Um, and and there, were, there were times, you know, there was a story that I wrote about um, human trafficking uh, along this, this man-made lake, and I remember trying to get in touch with the appropriate government official for, for a response. And uh, they they sent me. I, w- I did a lot of walking. I, I didn't I didn't necessarily always make these as phone calls um, because I just prefer the in person for certain topics, and this was one of them. Um, they sent me on like a miles long goose chase to four different buildings when I actually had gone to the right building in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! In in a hundred degree heat with my laptop, my camera, I was drenched and not very excited. But I did finally. <laughs> I finally got someone to talk to me because when I got back to the first building, I was like, I'm going to sit here until you get, until you bring someone out. I'm not leaving. Nice. <laughs> um, so there were times when, it, when, when it was clear that, you know, um, when it was clear that the journalists weren't necessarily a priority, but before I get to bashing Ghana, I will say that mm. some things like that happen here too. Sure. Just not, not necessarily as physical of a runaround, but runarounds do occur here. Right. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how much you said you were there three months, right? Yep. How much does that experience, does it inform kind of like your journalism now or maybe kind of like your worldview now? Oh, I don't even think I could put a quantity on it. Um, I mean, it changed. It changed everything. Um, I could say that unequivocally. Um, how so? Be, because for one, I mean, having to work that hard for a story, I needed that, um, you get caught up in your small victories at your newspaper that you work for as a student journalist or whatever. Um, and you don't necessarily have to work as hard. And I'm not, I'm speaking in blanket terms here. I know there's some great work that goes on at that level, but, um, I really needed to, to have to put forth the effort, um, in terms of my journalism. Um, and, and it was great. I was happy to do it. And I learned that I could sit there and I could, strong arm someone into talking to me. And that, that was really important. Um, in addition to that, I mean, much, much beyond that, I think going to, to Ghana and being there for so long helped me understand, um, how frustrated the, the people I met get with this whole portrayal of, of Africa as a single country. Um, you know, that's why whenever I speak about this, I am quick to say like the things that I saw there happen here too. They might happen on a different level. There's extreme poverty there and their extreme poverty might not be our extreme poverty, but we have extreme poverty here too. We have extremely rich people. So do they. Um, And I think that 
yeah, I think that I, I now go forward everything that I, I say and do and think, and not just about Ghana, but about probably just about any country I haven't been to, I realize that there are far more parallels than there are between between the us and them. So I try to avoid that narrative. Uh-huh. I, I, I wanted to ask you, you kind of hinted at this earlier, but you, I, like I said, you cover pretty weighty subjects. Um how do you how do, how do you decompress on that? Like, for a, a, as a person, like coming home after covering breaking news or writing about opioids or something like this, like how do you kind of keep that from just kind of weighing you down? Pers- you know, outside of work and bringing that home. Yeah, no, um, it, it's it's a big thing. It's a big conversation um, among journalists. Um, you know that that I've seen other journalists my age. Uh, you know, especially. In, with high school shootings, which thank goodness I've never even had, I've never had to cover something like that. If it happened, I would have to, um, you, well, I, I firmly believe you just, you have to talk about these things. You have to, you have to talk about how, you know, I, I got back from that interview with the family, um, the opioid overdose obituary family. Mm Mm-hmm. And it it was heavy. It was it was powerful, and and it was horrible because you're just sitting in the room with people who are just absolutely devastated for two hours, and they're spilling their guts out to you, even though they don't even know you. It's it's a really bizarre experience. Um, so I did, you know, I told, I, I called up my buddy, one of my fellow reporters, and told her just about it, and we just talked about it. And I think that that's I think that's really important. I think if you don't. Um, have some kind of conversation, some kind of debriefing, like an actual debriefing. Um, I'm sure it takes different forms for different reporters, but for me, um, it, it's talking to other people. And I think if I didn't do that, I might go a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the best thing you've read lately? Um, well, right now I'm in the middle of uh, Bastard out of South Carolina. Okay. Um, and I, I say this because I, I read news articles all the time uh and i couldn't name one of those but i think that that i'm trying to remember that reading for for fun (laughs) (laughs) is equally important and this book is so well written um that i can't wait to finish it and life keeps getting in the way but i'm vowing to finish it with by the end of the month all right what's it about um well let me let me i'm gonna i'm gonna grab it real quick because i think that the summary um on the back is gonna do better than I can. Hold on. All right. Okay. So, um, basically it's told from the point of view of a child who it's, it's kind of tragic. So maybe, (laughs) maybe, maybe I'm still not um, doing the best and getting something uplifting, but um, it's told from the point of view of a a child who her, her family is like a rough and tumble family out of, out of South Carolina. Um, And her mother has brought this guy into the home who's, he's just kind of, he's kind of creepy. You get bad vibes about him right away, but he turns out being like a real asshole. Um, but you're, you're, you're hearing this whole thing from the eyes of the child. You're seeing how broken families and broken relationships and, and bad parenting can, can really, you know, impact, you know, you, you see these young kids and maybe you don't think that 
that it's impacting them or that they're understanding or comprehending what's going on. And this book shows you that that's clearly not the case. Obviously, it's fiction, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. So I'm just really enjoying it. Excellent. Um, I can recommend uh, it's a news a sports column that I read over the weekend, and it was really wonderful. It's by my friend Mike Sealski, works at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he, he wrote about Sister Jean and the press, uh, it was before the final four. So I think it ran like on Friday, but it, it was really great because he talked to, he talked about Sister Jean and the big press conference that they had at the final four. Um, and also he talked to somebody on Villanova and he basically made the point of, you know, it, it, one of the dangerous things we tend to do in sports media and probably all media, but especially sports is that we take someone like Sister Jean and we make her into like this great character and this, you know, almost like a lovable meme, right? And she's this, this kind of feel good story and it, it and in a way it can ignore like the real value she has to Loyola to the team and to that that community and like the service that she brings and it was, I, I just thought it was a great you know I, I hated seeing that room because I hated seeing all the people in the room and like what are you gonna get fresh from that room when you're in there with every reporter and I just thought it was a really it was a really kind of well thought out interesting take on and uh, on it not in, in a hot takey way, but in a, no, this is the real value that Sister Jean can bring, and let's not miss that for all the fun that she's having. So I, I just thought it was really well thought out and really well written. That, no, that's awesome. And you know, the best, that's what the best, that's what the best writing does, you know, column or not, is it just finds the angle that no one else has really thought of yet. Right. So how do you do that as a writer? How do you try well, to find the angle that no one else has found yet? Well, I'll tell you what, it's getting really hard with opioids, because um, people are, are it's been an interesting evolution um, where people were just like, why do we care about these people? Then they were all like, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. Like, I know someone. I know someone. And now they're all like, we all know it's addictive. Like, why are you still writing about this? Gotcha. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think um, a good example was the obituary. Um, you know, I, we had never written about that. And we actually don't see it a lot. There are, you know, we know for a fact that, a thousand people died more than a thousand people died of o overdoses in Connecticut. And I mean, maybe four obituaries mention any kind of thing about addiction. So mm -hmm. that was a different angle to me. And then actually it took really well. Um, people were very impressed by the bravery of this family. Um, so, I mean, I'm always, I'm always thinking about it. I, I keep my eye on national news and I'll try to see if trends nationally are, are happening um, for us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just try to, try to, to watch out. I, I really think that social media is a, a gift and a curse. I try to, watch, mm -hmm. uh, try to watch out for what people are talking about already. And if I can expand on something that I always do. Awesome. Lindsay, if people want to find you, where's the best place to do so? Oh, you know, probably on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, Lindsay A. Boyle. Um, you can, just Google my name and the day and you'll find all the other ways to contact me, my email address, phone number, um, all of that fun stuff. Excellent. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguide.com on The Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. 